Good morning, everybody. It's me again. Sorry. But today, today I have the privilege of wrapping up our Apology Accepted series. Now, perhaps it was chance that I landed on today's topic, but I don't know. I have a feeling there were forces at play that said, no, no, it's you. The issue we're facing this morning is Christianity promotes violence. Now, this issue has been around for centuries, so we're going to do our best to confront what has led to that perception, why sometimes well-meaning, possibly nominal, and of course those in name only Christians, behave violently. And we're going to look at how we can overcome the natural urge as fallen humans to embrace violence by becoming peacemakers. So as Louis Barbieri said in his commentary on Matthew 5, 9, our goal today is to learn to show others how to have inward peace with God and how to be instruments of peace in the world. We can only do that if we understand why violence in the name of Christianity happens and how we individually can turn away from it and toward peace. I'm sure by now you're used to seeing Rebecca McLaughlin's name, her book, Confronting Christianity, both Wayne and Jeremy have been quoting from. It's worth a read. She makes this statement to which many seems obvious. She says, people of every major religion have engaged in horrifically violent acts, often appealing to divine mandates for their violence. She does go on, however, to point out the vast amount of good Christians have done while at the same time owning up to the many mistakes. She writes, to be sure, Christianity has had a huge impact for peace and justice, unparalleled by any other worldview. And she cites many great examples, while acknowledging at the same time that the record of Christian failure is also long. So let's take a look at some of that record. First, we'll look at a few historical examples most of you are probably familiar with, such as the Crusades, the Inquisitions, and the violence surrounding the Reformation and Counter-Reformation era. We do not have time to go into much depth about any of these, but we will take a high-altitude view just to set the stage. Then we'll examine what's happening now. Perhaps the most well-known example of violent acts committed in the name of Christ were the Crusades of the 11th to 13th centuries. They've been romanticized, they've provided the backdrop for fantastic stories in print and on film, but the reality is that what went down was actually quite different than what's usually portrayed. While the Crusades by no means maintained a consistent focus on a just cause, the initial reason they began in the first place is rarely explained and not quite so simple as most think. It wasn't simply an invasion of the Holy Land for no reason. However, over time, the Crusades did result in unreasonable violence and atrocities committed by those claiming to represent Christ, which is the characteristics of the Crusades that largely remains today. I think the uh, history.com website has a great succinct definition for what the Inquisition was. It says the Inquisition was a powerful office set up within the Catholic Church to root out and punish heresy throughout Europe and the Americas. Beginning in the 12th century and continuing for hundreds of years, the Inquisition is infamous for the severity of its tortures and its persecution of Jews and Muslims. 
There wasn't just one inquisition. You've probably heard of the Spanish inquisition. No, I'm not going to put the Monty Python sketch up here, though I was tempted. But the fact is there were many periods and locations where the officials called inquisitors carried out their often brutal search for heretics and apostates seeking confessions and conversions. The fact is confessing or claiming conversion was no guarantee they would spare your life either. It was a terribly violent process. As an interesting side note, it was under Napoleon's leadership that the Inquisitions were ended. Now, although there was violence aplenty during the Reformation and Counter-Reformation period, one clash that stands out, which historians are divided, but some believe may have been more politically than religiously motivated, was the Thirty Years' War. And although it did have political overtones, the fountainhead of the conflict was most definitely religiously motivated within the struggle between Protestantism and Catholicism. It is estimated that somewhere between 4 and 12 million people died as a result of this conflict. 450,000 in actual combat, with the remaining from disease or famine as a direct result of the war. Well, now that we've taken a stroll through our stellar history, let's examine some modern examples where violence is attributed to Christians or those claiming to represent Christ. Again, we don't have time for too much detail, so this is just an overview. Now, the first two are somewhat obvious if you pay attention to the news. Unfortunately, you see plenty of these stories. That third one there is a bit more nuanced, even though I believe our response, which we'll get to later, should still be the same. So I'm guessing that no matter how abhorrent your view of abortion, most likely no one in here, at least I hope not, has thought about bombing a clinic or shooting a doctor. It's happened plenty of times, mostly in the late 20th century, but nevertheless, violence has been enacted against those in the abortion industry by some who call themselves Christians. Likewise, there have been similar attacks on mosques and synagogues, not only in the United States, but around the world by individuals claiming to follow Jesus. No matter what other moniker they have, be it white supremacist or anti-Semitic, there's always that added label, whether it's accurate or not, of Christian. Very simply put, I believe, now this is my definition, so blame me, but I believe the Christian nationalism in the United States is the confusion of the biblical description of Old Testament Israel as a theocracy with the desire to see the United States as a godly nation, resulting in that application of Old Testament theocratic principles to our approach to civic or social change. Now, I'm not going to repeat that, but in other words, the Christian nationalist wants religious rule, very specifically Christian rule. Much like Muslim countries practice Sharia law, Christian nationalists want Christian law. Well, that sounds good on the surface, right? Problem is, nowhere in the New Testament will you find that mandate. Nowhere. I've covered this pretty extensively in the past. I don't have time to go into detail. If you want a review, go to our website. Here's a shameless plug. Watch my sermon from last year, September 6th. It was titled, Not of This World. And I expound on this subject uh, quite a bit more. Okay, commercial's over. So how does this play out in terms of labeling Christianity as a religion of 
violence. I think this quote from an opinion piece in the New York Times about the incident of January 6th speaks volumes. It's a damning perspective from the view of a liberal secularist. He says, obviously, the best evidence would be the use of sacred symbols during the insurrection, such as the cross, Christian flag, Jesus saves sign, etc. But also the language of the prayers offered by the insurrectionists both outside and within the Capitol indicates the views Jesus not only wanted them to violently storm the Capitol in order to take it back from the socialists, globalists, etc., but also believed God empowered their efforts, giving them victory. Today's evangelical conservatives have given up on spiritual revival as a means of change. Let that phrase marinate in you for just a moment. Today's evangelical conservatives have given up on spiritual revival as a means of change. Their goal is no longer to persuade the public of their religious and moral convictions. Rather, their goal has become to authoritatively enforce behavioral guidelines through elected and non-elected officials who will shape policies and interpret laws such that they cannot be so easily altered or dismissed through the vagaries of popular elections. It is not piety, but policy that matters most. So after all that, let's ask the question again, does Christianity promote violence? I have the privilege here of leading our group of college students. I love our college students. They have such great thoughts and insights during our Bible studies together. Now, last week, as we were wrapping up our study, uh, I was sharing that I would be preaching this Sunday, and I wouldn't be in with them. And so, of course, the question came up, well, what are you going to be speaking on? So I said, well, does Christianity promote violence? And I mean, without a nanosecond of delay, as soon as I said that, one of our brilliant students, Abby Powell, said this, well, Christianity doesn't, but Christians do. I said, wow, <laughs> okay, that's pretty, pretty heavy. I said, I have to use that. Is that okay? She's like, sure. She's, you know, I said, can I put your picture up? Sure. So that's a great transition point to our next di discovery question, which is why? Why? Well, before we dig a little deeper, let's get the most basic ideas out there. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin states it this way, and I totally agree. First, we cannot assume that everyone who identifies as a Christian authentically is one, Okay. Second, the Bible teaches us to expect moral failure from Christians. Both true statements. So in light of those overarching ideas, I see three specific factors that can lead to Christians acting violently. Let's be clear. In contrast to our authentic faith. Now these three factors are bad, incomplete, or no biblical knowledge at all. Negative influence or groupthink and emotional overwhelm. I will explain all of those here in a moment, but let's begin with biblical knowledge. Starting with biblical knowledge, you've heard it said before, and if you've been around FBC for any length of time, you know that we place a high value on the careful handling of Scripture. Well, there are many, many churches and Christian organizations that don't have quite the level of study that we have here. In some cases, it's intentional, as it allows for a certain level of manipulation. In others, it's simply from ignorance. Paul writes to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In many of the examples of violence perpetrated in the name of Christ, we see this played out. And Paul goes on to say, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Throughout the history of the church, twisted teaching of half-truths mined from Scripture have been used to gain power and privilege, both of which often use violence as a means of control. Anybody here ever see the movie The Book of Eli? It's a fantastic movie. Now, spoiler alert, is an excellent example of what we're talking about played out in here. Now, this movie's over 10 years old, so I don't feel too bad about spoiling some of it. But the book, well, I won't spoil certain things, but let's just suffice to say that Eli is this man protecting the last copy in the world. This is like a post-apocalyptic movie here. It's the last copy in the world of this book. Well, what do you think the book is? It, it's the Bible. It's the Bible. But, oh, caution, by the way, if you want to run home and watch this movie, don't watch it with your kids. This is not a movie for children. It ha it's very violent, and it definitely has some harsh language. So watch it yourself first. I'm going to show you a clip here in a minute that I think is a great picture of how the Word of God is often desired to be used for nefarious means. Now, at this point in the film, you as the audience are a little ambiguous about which book this actually is, although there's been some clues leading up to it. And although it may seem like the antagonist has good intentions, I assure you they are not. So check this out. thing loaded? I don't think it's loaded. One way to find out. Look, I need that book. I mean, I want the book. And you, but if you make me choose, I'll kill you. I'll take the book. Why? Why do you want it? I grew up with it. I know its power. If you read it, then so do you. That's why they burn them all after the war. It's just staying alive is an act of faith. Building this town is an even bigger act of faith, but they don't understand that. None of them. And I'd have had the right words to help them, but the book does. I admit. I've had to do things, many, many things I hate to build this. I confess that. But if we have that book, I wouldn't have to. I imagine. Imagine how, how, how different, how righteous this little world could be if we had the right words for our faith. Well, if people would truly understand why they're here and what they're doing, and they wouldn't need any other uglier motivations. 
It's not right to keep that book hidden away. It's meant to be shared with others. It's meant to be spread. Isn't that what you want? With all my heart and soul. I always believed that I'd find a place where this book belonged, where it was needed. I haven't found it yet. Well, just like an actual sword, the word can be used or misused. Uh, Dave Kinnaman in the book Unchristian lays out a great example. He says, usually when a Christian talks about being engaged in a battle, this type of metaphor stems from the scriptural references that describe the spiritual world as an epic struggle. Yet outsiders hear this language and become alarmed by the militaristic talk and consider what happens when Christians are exposed to this warfare verbiage without the benefit of understanding Paul's comments in Ephesians. Without context, these individuals may respond in unchristian ways toward outsiders. And even those with a biblical worldview can internalize this tough talk about spiritual warfare and lose sight of what it means to be full of grace towards skeptics and critics. So it is incumbent on us to present things clearly, creatively, and without cliches. And particularly among Christians, our calls to action must provoke each other to self-examination, humility, and appropriate engagement. With fellow believers who lack a holistic biblical worldview, we have to be particularly cautious not to create attitudes in them or alarm them in ways that give them an excuse to be unchristian. The next factor I believe exists is the negative influence of a few individuals or an individual on a larger body that can lead to groupthink. Now, some of you are probably familiar with this term, maybe even in the workplace you've studied it. Groupthink is a phenomenon that occurs when a group of well-intentioned people makes irrational or non-optimal decisions spurred by the urge to conform or the belief that dissent is impossible. The problematic or premature consensus that is characteristic of groupthink may be fueled by a particular agenda or it may be due to group members valuing harmony and coherence above critical thought. This concept explains why many Christians and even pastors in Germany during World War II did or said nothing. This is the concept behind the phrase sheeple. We've all used that term a lot over the past year for right or for wrong. I'm sure some, many of you in here, if not all of you, have certainly heard it and used it. It's been prevalent as we see so many people following others blindly. The excellent poet, classical poet, brilliant songwriter, Dave Mustaine of Megadeth, lays out this in the song, Holy Wars. He writes, brother will kill brother, spilling blood across the land, killing for religion, something I don't understand. Fools like me who cross the sea and come to foreign lands, ask the sheep for their beliefs. Do you kill on God's command? In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul addresses our tendency to be too easily swayed from our first calling, a true unity grounded in love and service. He writes, so Christ gave, himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Finally, let's look at this thing called emotional overwhelm. I had an idea what this was when I set out to study this issue of Christians and violence, but I really wasn't aware there's an actual term for it and a definition. Emotional overwhelm is a state of being beset by intense emotion that is difficult to manage. It can affect your ability to think and act rationally. It could also prevent you from performing daily tasks. Emotional overwhelm may be caused by stress, traumatic life experiences, relationship issues, and much more. Right now, some of you are going, oh, that's it. I relate, especially after the past year and a half, right? Well, in their excellent book, City of Man, Michael Gerson and Peter Winter address this issue without really naming what it is. But they illustrate a really good point about where we need to set our minds, where we need to direct our emotions as Christ followers. They write, there's a reason Christians are instructed in Colossians to set their hearts and minds on things above. Doing so has the capacity to transform the human heart, to make believers thankful, and to put to death their earthly nature, including anger, rage, malice, and slander. Like so many other Christians, we too have been much more likely to lash out at others when we have begun to think as citizens of earth instead of as citizens of heaven. The reference here is to Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which says, If then... You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. They go on to say only when one begins to believe that God isn't sovereign does it become easy to develop an aggressive, anxious, brittle, desperate spirit. So obviously this is not an exhaustive list, but I do think understanding these factors can help us understand why the perception that Christianity promotes violence exists. We can see all three running rampant through American Christianity, can't we? How do we get back to where we belong? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So how do we become peacemakers? Well, to understand that, I think we need to understand peace. Now, depending on the translation, there are around 360 uses of the word peace in the New Testament. So I hope you have time. We're going to go through each and every one, right? I'm just kidding. Come on. For purposes of this morning's message, we're going to examine three uses and applications of the term. Peace with God, peace within, and peace with others. All three are to be understood in a biblical context. Colossians 1 
19 and 20, says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This represents the peace that we have with God, having placed our trust in the redemptive work of Christ. We go from being his enemy through sin to becoming his children. As Norm Geisler puts in his commentary, it causes God's enemies to become, by faith, his friends and his children. That's the first type, peace with God. All right, the peace within, second one there. This is not some new age thing, all right, about being happy with yourself and feeling good. It's much deeper than that. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Bob Leitner explains it this way. He says, The peace of or from God relates to the inner tranquility of a believer's close walk with God. I really like that phrase, inner tranquility. The world could be falling apart around us, but because we are walking with God and have the Holy Spirit within us, we can still experience inner peace knowing He's in charge. Listen, mini-sermon. I'm going to give you a mini-sermon within a sermon here, free of charge. I know many people in our congregation are hurting right now. Some of them I know personally, some of them I don't. But I know that there is a lot of stuff going on, and a lot of it is very painful. If you haven't already, meditate on these verses. We have a tendency to read right past some of these, what we might call simpler passages that we become too familiar with in a way. But they're quite deep. That peace of God that truly surpasses all understanding, all circumstances, all earthly relationships, if you are walking with God, you can know that peace. Now, if you don't, if you don't know that peace, please talk to me or find somebody that's wearing a name tag today and say, hey, I don't know that peace that AJ was talking about this morning. I would like to know more. We'll take all the time you need. And what I want to do now, though, is just knowing that so many people are going through so many difficult things, think about this, the inner tranquility. Just close your eyes for a moment, and then I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you here in just a few seconds. But think through, are you walking with God in such a way today that you have that inner tranquility, that you have that peace? Close your eyes for just a few seconds. Lord, I just pray for everybody here this morning. I pray for those who I know are going through difficult times, whether with work, whether with relationships, health. Pray for each and every one of them, Lord, that truly we might know the peace that surpasses all understanding, that we might truly walk with you, having that inner tranquility that we can only know with the relationship we have through Jesus to the Father. We thank you and praise you for that and for calling us to be a part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you ready to be convicted?
Trust me, as I've been preparing for this message, I definitely have been. That third kind of piece, here we go. You cannot escape the directives. You cannot. Here goes lightning Bible round. Romans 12, 17 through 19 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive, strive for peace with everyone, not just for those people you like, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. James 3, 17 and 18, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, Peter's quoting the Psalms here. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Sometimes you just have to let the word speak for itself, right? I don't really have too much of my own words to add to those passages. If you need to look at them later, you have them in your bulletin. If you begin to feel like the stressors of today are tempting you toward any response other than pursuing peace, turn to the word. sure some of you are sitting there thinking, wait a minute, aren't you missing something? What about war? Hearing a message like this, one might think, oh, well, then you must be a pacifist. You're preaching a message of pacifism. Well, not exactly. Some of you have seen these before. Yes, that's me. I haven't changed much, right? So the picture on the left here, that's my lovely wife pinning my airborne wings on me after jump school. No, she has not changed in 32 years. Those of you who know her know what I'm talking about. Yes, I have. Um, <clears throat> that other one, of course, a few years later. I, I fully embraced my military service, and I would do it all over again, and then some. So what about passivism? How does this relate? If Christians were meant to be pacifists, one would expect to find a command or a directive in Scripture to that effect. None, however, can be found. When soldiers approached John the Baptist and asked him, what should we do to be pleasing to God? John did not condemn war or participation in war, but instead warned them against extortion and greed. The problem with the pacifist view is that it misidentifies the morality of the individual as justification for the morality or behavior of the state. The teachings of Jesus regarding loving one's enemies and turning the other cheek were meant to discourage revenge. In Matthew 8, we read about Jesus' interaction with the centurion who Christ said, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. What he didn't say was, now you have to quit the army. 
In Acts chapter 10, we have the story of Cornelius, another centurion who played a pivotal role in the early inclusion of Gentiles to the gospel and the early church. What's missing? You guessed it, the part where he gives up his military career. Now, to be clear, as Martin Luther said, what men write about war saying that it is a great plague is all true. But they should also consider how great the plague is that war prevents. And Christian philosopher Arthur Holmes wrote, to call war anything less than evil would be self-deception. The Christian conscience has throughout history recognized the tragic character of war. The issue that tears the Christian conscience is not whether war is good, but whether it is in all cases avoidable. There's something called the just war theory. Perhaps you've heard about it. For example, no one would argue that going to war against Hitler in World War II was a grave spiritual mistake. St. Augustine actually sought to define what constitutes just war. He wrote, for a war to be just, it must be waged for self-defense rather than conquest, plunder, or political aggression. It must be initiated by the proper authority, in other words, a lawful government rather than an angry mob. It must be fought with the right intention. The ultimate goal is peace. It should not be fought in order to gain land or wealth or power. It must have a reasonable chance of success, and it must use means proportionate to the goal. If, for example, the goal is to liberate unoppressed people, it makes no sense to destroy cities in the process. Similarly, there will be times when violence is justified in the context of law enforcement. And that in no way contradicts spiritual edicts about peace. In fact, quite the opposite. It is clear that we are to strive for justice, to protect, and to obey and enforce the laws of the land. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Possibly the clearest passage concerning our civic responsibilities as Christ followers is found in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. I think it's pretty clear that violence is not a result of the Christian message. But it can be the application through misunderstanding or intentional deceit by Christians and non-Christians alike. That's why it's so important we understand how to live in this tension. And we seek to live biblical lives and as example of true Christ followers. So how do we live in the tension? I think there are three things we can keep in mind to help us do this. First of all, strive to be a peacemaker. Practice love and make peace with others everyone in so much as you can keep an eternal perspective focus on the things above and not earthly concerns and third 
share the gospel of grace. True peace only comes from being reconciled to God through faith in Christ alone. Christianity doesn't promote violence. Exactly the opposite. Christianity is the only faith, the only worldview that promotes the only path to true peace. Reject violent behavior based on bad Bible teaching, groupthink, or feeling emotionally overwhelmed. Live in the truth of the peace that passes all understanding, and you will demonstrate authentic Christianity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you that we celebrate our freedoms. I pray for each and every person here, Lord, that we might, uh, that we might go from here and honor you, that we might be peacekeepers. Lord, that we might trust in your sovereignty, that we might focus on the things above and not of this earth, and that, that may inform all that we do. Once again, Lord, we worship you this morning. We praise you for all that you have given us. In Jesus' name. Amen.